partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, your weekly look at all things media and journalism here on 2SER Radio and across the community radio network. My name's Jack Fisher. Today we're discussing the rather complex world of data journalism. If you don't know what that's all about, well it's this. A data journalist uses data, sometimes big sets of data, to tell stories and to go beneath the surface of the numbers and statistics you might read in the newspaper. On our panel today, we have two data journalists, Nick Evershed from Guardian Australia and Edmund Tudros from the Australian Financial Review. We're also joined by a civic hacker, Hanari Degan from the Open Australia Foundation. We'll find out what that's about in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to begin with a conversation I had recently with Lisa Williams from the Investigative News Network in the US. Lisa describes herself as a fairy godmother for investigative journalists. She basically helps them tell data stories using the right visualization tools. Here's what she had to say. My big fear and concern is that I worry that journalism is becoming less effective. And by that, I mean that I worry that journalism is becoming less effective at holding the powerful to account. I feel like the powerful, uh, whether they're in business or in government, have gotten better at resisting the products of journalism that we uncover the story, they get a crisis manager and get in the bunker and wait for us to go away and nothing changes. My question is how do we change that? Um, How do we make journalism increasingly effective at creating justice and holding the powerful to account? Um, I think one of the ways that we can do that is through technology. Technology offers us opportunities to um, avoid charges that oh, well, such and such is just an isolated incident, right? Well, if you have data that that's not so, and you can show it and be effective at communicating that to people, you're more effective as a journalist. The other aspect is that it can help us make stories persistent. We're we're stuck in this article box, right? Or we create articles or packages, we have a format, and the article gets published and then it goes away. Um, What if stories never ended? What if stories updated themselves? What if stories became signals like stock tickers or information about sport, right? I think that there are whole new uh, ranges of opportunities for journalists who pick up some technical skills to be able to hold the powerful to account in new ways that don't go away and that are more resistant to public relations. I think it's also important to remember as you do data journalism that I think a lot of times when people see charts and graphs in a book, on a web page, in the media, what they think immediately, their immediate reaction is, fact, this is facts, this is science, right? And they don't use the same filters, the same critical thinking that they might if a politician was speaking at them on the screen, where their critical thinker is engaged. So I think we have to be careful when we put charts and graphs in front of the reader and remember that, um, remember how people might look at them. 
you know, and be certain that we're inviting them to think critically about that chart or that graph, just the way we're inviting them to think critically about every other element of a story. That was Lisa Williams from the Investigative News Network. You're on Fourth Estate and we're discussing data journalism. Edmund, I might begin with you. You've been a journalist with Fairfax for a number of years, but you weren't always working with data. How did that come about? I started I started sort of dabbling uh, maybe when I was at the Herald. I used to be a trainee there and I started there. And I used to just use spreadsheets to do... Um, I was getting a lot of FOIs and... Um, Instead of getting, you know, large reams of paper, I'd just ask them to send me through the spreadsheet. And I did some very basic sort of crunching then. Uh, I was spent a year at a startup where I was surrounded by programmers. And I, um, the discovery I had there was they would easily manipulate large sets of data, and, but they didn't know what to do with them. And I would look at them doing this and I would think there's a story in there. And so they, sh- they sort of showed me a few tricks, um, nothing too complex, but just sort of how they... Once I got into how they thought, um, it sort of opens up your mind as to what you could do with the available information. And so since then, I've sort of built up skills here and there, like a sort of as I've needed to, and um, and as the sort of as the challenges have arisen, I've sort of tried to find a way to solve the problem that comes up. Yeah. And when did you first have the idea that you might forge a career in this area? Um, I was looking for a job, <laughs> and um, I'd been doing some stuff at the Canberra Times. Uh, which was around tender data. And I went into the Finn and, um, and we had a chat about it and they, they were looking for someone to do that sort of role and um, it was an undefined role and so I've sort of, um, and I don't think this would be any different to any other data journals, I've kind of made up the role as I've gone along. So I do a little bit of journalism but I do a lot of other things that um, sometimes I explain to the people I'm working with and sometimes I just go ahead and do it and they see the end result. Yeah. So where are we at in terms of data journalism in Australia? Has it peaked or is it still on the way up? What's going to happen? Oh, look, I think it's just getting started. Um, the um, Like I look at the stuff Nick does and I look at the stuff um, Hanari do, do, does and um, we're sort of just touching the surface now. So um, the, the things I do are quite, you know, they're dealing with data sets that, you know, you can describe in quite small numbers. Um Open Australia looks at government data sets and does quite amazing visualizations and things with that. And um, a lot of Nick's stuff is taking a, a set of data that you could write about until the cows came home, but you see it in a visual form and you can play around with it and it really sort of, you go, wow, that's amazing. Nick, what are the skill sets behind your work? What, what do you have that a, a normal journalist might not? Uh, so I actually taught myself programming a while back um, and that's helped a lot in my line of work. Um, that kind of comes in in two places, either you're doing stuff, uh, to manipulate very large data sets like Ed talked about, um, or you're doing stuff to, uh, the data visualization aspect. So that might be something in your web browser. So it moves around, it does certain things, it displays certain ways, all this, all this kind of stuff. So programming helps a lot, uh, but you don't necessarily need to have programming skills. Um, and apart from that, I mean came from a science background before I got into journalism. So uh, it's just, you know, your average Excel kind of stuff that you might do. Chucking a few graphs together in Excel helps immensely. Um, Knowing a little bit about statistics and how to interpret them helps a lot. Knowing what not to do as well is also very handy. 
Yeah, and you often hear a lot of journalists saying the reason they got into journalism was to get away from maths and numbers and that sort of thing. Was that ever the case with you? Uh, I'm actually not that great at maths. I mean, I've had to learn a lot about it, so I guess now I'm better. But when I when I finished high school, I, I did maths in society. For those who did the old HSC, that was like the second lowest possible level of maths you could do. And um, I actually had to study over the summer to even get into university um, because I didn't have any maths background, so I couldn't go into science without it. Cool. And what sort of stories are you telling with data? Uh, Lots of stories. (laughs) I mean, how long is a piece of string? Uh, Some recent stuff uh, has been, I had a look at the wage gap in Australia. Uh, That was quite interesting. I mean, I knew it existed, but I didn't know that it was getting worse. I also didn't know how it was in different occupations. Um, I've looked at uh, government contracts, uh, lots of different stuff. And Edmund, I suppose the Financial Review's audience is quite accustomed to big numbers and that sort of thing. Does that help at all? Um, oh, it just means I, I look for gaps in um, what I can do. So we have a lot of economists on staff and so um, the sort of raw economic analysis, they just do that as a bread and butter thing. Um, the areas I've looked at, um, which might be of interest to university students and recent graduates, is um, I've, done a, I've done quite a bit of work around um, graduate um, data and what happens to the employment rates of graduates, especially in um, accounting and law. Um, and what I've tried to do there, um, and I think this kind of goes to the heart of it a bit, is uh, you have a lot of vested interests telling you or telling students and prospective students, whether they be local or overseas, that they should, if they, um, you know, the tradition is you do a degree and you'll get a job. And that's kind of been broken a bit. And I've managed to get a range of quite, I mean, there are publicly available data sets to just show the massive, um, so for law, there's a massive oversupply of graduates and that's still working its way through the system. So that's one of those unintended consequences of government policy. Um, and that's having a real sort of impact for graduates now because it's a tough employment market. Plus, they're surrounded by peers who are all looking for jobs. At the same time, all the law firms are kind of contracting and outsourcing and doing um, and offshoring, and the same as the accounting firms. So um, you have this very um, complex labor market um, and the vested interest will go, no, everything's fine. You just need the degree. So the unis have a vested interest in keeping students coming through the door they aren't really held accountable for what happens to the product they produce. Um, with the accountants, um, you have the accounting body saying, no, no, there's, there's, there's a shortage of accountants. And there is, but not of graduates. So they kind of conflate that a bit. So you can use statistics and look at um, a bunch of labour market indicators and tell quite a sort of succinct and strong story that um, if you just interviewed people, you wouldn't be able to tell. And that kind of comes back to your, you can avoid maths and things like that. And you, and I mean, it's like Nick, I, I, don't, I don't do very complicated maths, but what I find is if you look at the numbers first and then talk to people, it's a very different experience because often the experts in the area haven't looked at the numbers recently. They have a sort of rough shorthand, but you'll go, actually, this is what the latest data shows. And, um, and often you'll email it to them and maybe they believe you or not but then you ref- you know you show them where you got it from so it's quite it's it's kind of a i guess it's how i can't imagine how i would do journalism otherwise now really are there specific figures that you're often looking for to demonstrate maybe a trend or something like that um no look the the uni stuff was i just 
um, started playing around with uh, law law graduate data, um, the number of law students, and I just noticed this massive sort of increase. And then I looked at the demand side, and um, and there was uh, there's a contraction. Oh, it's just kind of a stable market while you've got a massive supply going in there. So there's a story there, and um, and I think the quote from someone was, you know, it's a new arts degree, which is. Um, <laughs> Which is a bit, I guess it's a bit insulting to art students, but the point was um, people go in there with a certain expectation and the unis feed that expectation, they deny that, and then you've got these poor students at the end, four or five years later with a degree and um, with an expectation they'll get a certain amount of job. And so this kind of, um, by looking at all the stats, you could sort of go, actually, no, this is exactly what's happening. And I got a lot of response for that. So you kind of, you can always get a shorthand as to whether your story's hit a nerve or not by... The email, I got very long emails. So the candidates write really short emails about how upset they are. The um, law students write really long emails about how upset they are about the whole situation. Uh, some of the uh, figures and trends you're uncovering, do they often catch audiences by surprise? Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, it depends on what it is, but... I mean, sometimes it's obvious, like I did this thing where we looked at movie release dates, for example, like the head of Village Roadshow came out and said, oh, you know, movies aren't really delayed delayed in Australia. And we were like, oh, well, come on, let's have a look at this. And it, it was complete bullshit. They're still delayed. And everyone knows that, right? But I mean, when I did the wage gap thing, I was like, actually, it's getting worse. Didn't realize it was getting worse. Um, I had naively assumed it was, you know, kind of, the same or getting slightly better but maybe maybe that's just me being an optimist i don't really know but yeah i mean there's definitely things you find that you don't really expect until you actually look at the figures and what propelled you to scratch the surface on that wage gap story because we often hear this idea that women and men are working different jobs and so this gap is somehow natural but you broke down the numbers for women and men doing the same job and showed that gap uh, yeah, I actually did a follow-up to uh, the Sydney Morning Herald originally, so they had a story out on a certain day, and because um, it was equal pay day, it's like this day when you look at the wage gap, it's a certain number of days that women would have to work extra in a year to earn the same as men on average. It's a little bit complicated. It's calculated from the financial year. Anyway, they had a story out that day, and I did a follow-up to it, um, and then as I was looking through the ABS stuff, I saw that they had breakdowns by occupation and I actually already knew of, um, this graphic that New York times had done years and years ago, like 2008, 2009, uh, where they basically did that thing, breakdown by occupations. And, um, I got in touch with a guy I knew who'd written a data viz update of their piece and said hey can I use your code I want to update it with Australian stuff and make some changes and he was like yeah cool go ahead and that's just like building on you know basically other people's journalism work other people's programming work which is a big thing in the programming world Hanari will definitely be able to tell you that you're building on like the work of so many other people and it's it's amazing like you can get online and you can go I need to analyze X, Y, or Z, and you can find that someone's already done it before you and has had similar issues to you. Yeah, so. absolutely. Hanari, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Open Australia project and what it encompasses? Sure. So um, the Open Australia Foundation is a registered charity here in Australia. Uh, we've been running for about seven years or so. Uh, we run about six different projects, and these are digital projects that are kind of in the public interest. Uh, they're all free, uh, they're all open source, and, and hopefully we can go into what that means later. 
Um, and they all are fo really heavily focused on the citizen, and so making citizens' interactions with politicians, government, and community better. Um, and uh, that takes many different shapes and forms through our different projects, uh, which, as I said, there's about um, half a dozen different projects. And as a result of doing that, uh, we, as uh, I like to think of it as a positive byproduct of our work, is that we create this interesting data and, and information that journalists like um, Ed and Nick can go on to create stories out of as well. Yeah, and as Nick was mentioning, how much of that has been based on the programming work of others before you? Yeah, so um, all of our projects are open source, and uh, for people that don't know what that means, it's um, you might have heard of the Firefox web browser that's built as open source, so all the code's open to inspect. That's really important for what we do because a lot of our data is kind of related to politics or something like that. So people need to be able to have a look at the code and understand that we're not messing with it. We're we're nonpartisan. And so people need to understand that we're not uh, changing values in that in that data. All of our projects come, um, or m almost all of our projects have been inherited from overseas. So um, we like to use a lot of the code that comes from the UK because they have a similar political system. So that's been really valuable to take that code and 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 adapt it for use in Australia. Um, there's a, a currently a movement of all sorts of different civic projects like this um, called Poplus. Um, there's also projects like Oliver Telly, which runs our Freedom of Information Request platform. And these are sites that are used all around the world, and we contribute back to them, and everyone around the world gets those benefits in, in different jurisdictions. Now, Derek Willis, who has really led the focus on data journalism at the New York Times, is a bit of a data guru. Now, he talks about interviewing the data, that is, treating it as you would an interview subject, being critical and not necessarily trusting. What's the idea behind this? Why do we need to be so sceptical? Uh, you need to know where it's come from. You need to know who produced it. You need to know how they produced it. Uh, so many different things. Um, you can't just trust numbers because they're numbers, obviously. <laughs> um, you got to know like methodologies, all that kind of stuff. Um, Otherwise, you know, maybe their sample size was too small. That's a big thing for surveys, and basically their numbers could be crap. Um, Ed's done a lot of work with polls, for example, so I'm, I'm sure he could tell you a lot about sample sizes and poll averages. Yeah. Um, look, just in general, when you're looking at a set of data, it, um, it's, like you, it's like Nick says, you can't, um, it can only tell you what it can tell you you can't go beyond that so the um the first thing you need to know is yeah all of the antecedents of it and that usually involves doing something that's a bit unusual in journalism is tracking down whoever put it together so you might ring up a government department or a pro whoever did it and and just asking them look what, what can this data tell me and what are the limits of it and the limits are probably more important than what it can tell you um, and that sort of, and then when you're interviewing it, it's like interviewing a robot, right? If you ask it a question and it gives you an answer and you do something dumb with that answer or something that doesn't make sense, that's your fault. So it's really on you to make sure that whatever answers you get or whatever analysis you do, it actually has some meaning. And so it's kind of like if journalism's a process, you're going up the food chain and whereas normally you'd get the end result in sort of some analysis, you're going and doing that analysis and you're having to work out what it means and you're having to work out if it's useful or not. Um, and so with polls, I mean, I, I've sort of come full circle on this. When I first started writing about them, I wrote a lot about margins of errors and um, sample sizes and things like that. What I do now is um, there's, I think, about five polls left now. There's no, no more Nielsen. Um, and I just sort of look at, I just treat it like an economic indicator. So... Um, you know, there'll be 
there'll be two polls that come out on the same day. I'll write them both up and I'll go, look, this is the range of what they're saying at the moment. Um, the truth is somewhere around there. I don't know. But um, what you're looking for is a long-term trend. Um, another example would be um, today's unemployment figures. So um, you can look at – everyone looks at seasonally adjusted and they report about that. But really the trend is what you want to look at because – um, if you look at the margins of error in um, labour force figures, they're quite big. And it's actually, um, if it keeps going the way it's going this month, it's, it's going to become an, ir- an issue because um, they had a, a 0.3 percentage point um, change in the unemployment rate. So um, it's um, the sample size there is an, is an issue. So that's where it can, um, you kind of need to, you can't draw too many conclusions from it. You really have to, which is the opposite of what you want as a journalist. You want to be able to go, bang, this is what the new data says. So you have to kind of um, be an anti-journalist sometimes. It's, it's, um, it's quite an odd sort of experience. So you're obviously having conversations with the Bureau of Statistics or whoever you're getting your figures from. Another conversation that seems to be happening is with the readers. And you seem to get a lot of comments, Nick, on your stories saying, where is this coming from? Yeah. So when uh, Lisa was talking earlier, I uh, actually disagreed with one of her points. I think she said something like, when you put graphs up on a page, people... Tra- uh, treat as fact. That is not my experience in any way whatsoever. My readers will get stuck in and they'll say, why have you done this rather than this? Um, where is, you know, X, Y, or Z? Um, you know, what about this data set? Why, you know, where, where is this? Why haven't you done that? You know, I'm a professor at bloody university, blah, blah, and you're completely wrong. Um, so honestly, you have to assume that your readers know more than you do. Um, which is quite often the case. Uh, You're not an expert in any of the areas you're writing about unless you happen to be someone who was previously an expert in something and then turned to journalism. Um, And so when you actually do your analyses, you have to, you don't have to, but you should uh, get in touch with people who actually work in that area and just sanity check all your stuff and just say, here's what I think this is, what do you reckon? And they'll you know, be able to tell you much more so because they're working with that stuff day to day. Even if they don't see the actual figures, they can tell you if it sounds weird or if it if it just looks wrong. Um, and yeah, I've I've copped a fair bit of flack from commenters, but that's just part and of the game. Do they ever catch you out? Something that's been misinterpreted? Uh, yeah, I mean, now and then, you've you know you've put something in incorrectly, um, you've misinterpreted something, but I mean. I wish it was a bit more like that. I mean, I'd be happy to, like Lisa was talking about with the stories as a kind of ongoing thing, I'd be happy if people treated it more like that and I could actually have an ongoing series of corrections or making the thing better, like including more data, like in the same story over and over again, Um, or, you know, refining the methods or something like that. I think that'd be a much more robust uh, model than just it's up there once, everyone reads it and goes away. Um, so I don't know. I don't really know what the solution is there, but I mean, I have been thinking something along the lines of something we mentioned in the break, which is, uh, GitHub, um, is an interesting model for this kind of thing. So GitHub is a version control system. Well, Git is actually the version control system. Is that right? And GitHub is uh, the repository thing anyway. Hanari is much more more (laughs) well-versed in this sort of thing. Um, But basically, you control... One person can control which version of a thing you're working on. 
and various people can contribute to that thing and you can decide if you can incorporate their changes and all sorts of things. And I'd love for there to be something like that, sort of like a wiki, but a little bit different to a wiki, but for stories. I think that'd be great. Yeah, Wonderful. And, and we're really talking about moving towards iterative journalism, Yeah, um, which is kind of how programming works on GitHub. So you have something that starts and then everyone contributes to it, finds problems, tears it apart, puts it back together, then they go through versions. And um, I think that's kind of, that's the type of journalism that we're heading towards. Does that sound? Yeah, that's where I'd like to be anyway. I don't know how, but... (laughs) (laughs) We have in our midst a civic hacker, Hanari Degan from Open Australia. What does that mean? What's that all about? Uh, So civic hacking is a term uh, that relates to... uh, So in in the computer programming world, we talk about hackers, and that's not people that break into systems. It's actually people that uh, do smart things with systems. And so a civic hacker is someone who uses those skills to uh, do positive things in the civic space. Yeah. And the Open Australia, that encompasses a few different websites and a few different tools like you were mentioning. What perhaps would be of the most interest to journalists? So, as I said, we've got about half a dozen projects. Um, The two most interesting projects, I think, for journalists would be our Right to Know platform, which is righttoknow.org.au. That makes it super simple for people to do freedom of information requests. So it guides them through the whole process of making that request. And the other great thing about it is it opens up the whole black box of the process, the back and forth between people and, um, and the government agencies by publishing in real time all of that correspondence, that back and forth on an FOI request. Another really interesting um, platform, this is one of the projects that we've built ourselves, is uh, morph.io, and that's a web scraping platform. Uh, That is, uh, in the programming world, we'd like to call that scratching our own itch, but you might know that better as uh, necessity is the mother of of invention. Um, uh, One of our other projects, Planning Alerts, uh, needs lots and lots of scrapers, so we wrote this platform that makes it easy to collaborate on code using GitHub, as uh, Nick was talking about earlier, and then we take care of all the boring bits of running scrapers. Scrapers are are things that are used to get, um, uh, used to gather web data and and, in data journalism, they're a pretty essential tool, I'd say. And not just for journalists either. Uh, Obviously, this encourages a whole lot of civic participation. Do you get a lot of uh, interest from just ordinary Australians? In our projects, because uh, as I said earlier, we really focus on just making it super simple for citizens to use our projects. So um, the Planning Alerts project, project that I mentioned earlier is used by tens of thousands of people. We've sent out millions of planning applications. Uh, that website allows you to put in your email address, put in your street address, and you get an email whenever there's a, a planning application in your area. Um, uh, listeners to this station might uh, like it for finding out when uh, their pub's opening up a, a new new area or something like that, or, or there's some cool cafe going to build, be built down the road. I should also mention that you guys all know each other. There seems to be a bit of a community based around people who program and people who do journalism. Obviously, that wasn't the case five years ago. What happened? How did how did everyone converge as one? There's only, there's only about, what, a dozen of us? Yeah. No. I mean... Uh, I actually met Hanari at one of their hackathons or hackfests, or I can't remember which one of the, those two things it was uh, some uh, years been, ago. We've been calling them hackfests lately. Hackfests, and, yeah. uh, yes. And uh, short plug, we've got one in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got people from federal parliament attending. It's going to be awesome. There'll be people uh, you might know, such as Nick there, and so that'll be great. 
Cool. That's all we've got time for this week on Fourth Estate. But if you'd like to hear an extended edition of this discussion, you can find all our podcasts on the 2SER website. Thank you to our panel, Edmund Tadros, Nick Evershed, and Nari Degun. And thank you for tuning in. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We'll be back at the same time next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. See the program description for all the links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley's news and events. 